Hello, it's Wednesday, November the 8th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, Doug Rivers, Stanford University political scientist and Hoover's Senior Fellow. Doug's also the Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based internet survey firm. Like all good political scientists and pollsters on Tuesday night in November, Doug Rivers was watching returns last night. Yes, uh, Bill. If it wasn't an earthquake, it was at least a tremor. Uh, The polling before the election was all over the map. There was uh, one poll that had uh, uh, Northam, the Democrat, leading by 18 points, Mm -hmm. and another that had uh, Gillespie, the Republican, uh, up by half a dozen. Um, I think a, a variety of actually relatively poor polling convinced people this race was closer than it actually was. Uh, our polling showed very little movement. There were a lot of interesting stories around the country uh, last night, Doug. Democrats won mayoral races in Charlotte, North Carolina, and St. Petersburg, Florida, two very closely fought uh, races. Uh, Democrats picked up two legislative seats in Georgia. Uh, in special elections there up in Maine, voters approved question two, Doug, which was uh, on expanding Medicaid under Obamacare. Maine became the 32nd state to do so. In Middletown, Iowa, Doug, the mayor of Middletown ran for re-election. The mayor of Middletown has an email signature, Doug, that says, make Middletown great again. <laughs> the mayor lost his right to a line. He lost to a riding candidate, Doug, 62 to 30. <laughs> so it was kind of a tough night all around for the red cap crowd, I think. But um, We'll get more into Virginia well, the, in a second, Doug, but let's, 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 let's take a couple minutes to just get, do New Jersey. So New Jersey one of the two states that had a gubernatorial contest. Uh, the winner in New Jersey, Democrat Phil Murphy, a former Goldman Sachs investor, uh, won the race by 14 points, 56 to 42. Seems to me, Doug, the story there is not just Murphy winning, but also the very large presence of one Chris Christie. Yes, the beached whale uh, will be departing from us. Um, it's interesting. Uh, if you want to see what real disapproval looks like, look at uh, Chris Christie, who is uh, polling closer to 20 percent, so um, far below what uh, Donald Trump uh, is running at. Right. Um, there's, you know, essentially all the Democrats in New Jersey disapprove of Christie, um, but uh, the Republicans are split with, you know, about 50-50 approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you compare that to where Donald Trump is at the moment. Um, he's at around you know, 70 to 80 percent approval uh, among Republicans. He has a long way to go down till he hits uh, those kind of numbers. Um, but that is what he should be worried about. Yeah, the Christie crash is just spectacular, Doug. This is a man who got 60 percent of the vote in his reelection mm-hmm. four years ago. This is a man who's seen his presidential timber after he got reelected in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few things. Uh, a little water went under the bridge and some cars over it as well. <laughs> no, the cars didn't get over it. They couldn't get over it. That <laughs> yeah. was the problem. <laughs> but, yeah, so Albatross there. Okay, so now Virginia. So I grew up in northern Virginia, Doug. I was I was raised in Arlington, Virginia. I went to college at Washington and Lee University, which is going to probably have to change its name to something less controversial like Smith & Wesson. <laughs> uh, but WNO, by the way, next door to VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, which is the alma mater of the winner in Virginia, Democrat Ralph Northam. I have seen that state change uh, in my lifetime, Judge. Uh, 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 Doug, there was a time when you could drive outside the Capitol Beltway and you'd be in the South Lickety Split. Manassas, where the Civil mm-hmm. War battlefields are, was really kind of the beginning of the South, the Deep South. Rural, thick accents, just not Yankee suburban. Mm-hmm. The South is receding like a hairline. 
And I think you saw this in Virginia. If you look at the results in Northern Virginia, it just is kind of creeping further and further back into Richmond. If you look at the map in particular, it's just that red blob. It's just shrinking, if you will. Virginia, I think, Doug, is becoming a blue state, if not already. Uh, the Democrats have won it in the uh, uh, last three presidential elections. Right. Uh, uh, they won uh, the governorship the last uh, couple of times. Right. Um, and even more shocking, uh, the Republicans held a uh, 66 out of 100 seats in the House of Delegates. Right. Um, and right now, uh, there are several races up for a recount, but it looks like the Democrats have a reasonable shot at uh, uh, taking control of that, uh, which is a um, something that will should scare uh, Republicans in Washington enormously. Um, that's the kind of shift that uh, Republicans are looking at in the midterm uh, congressional elections next year. Right. right. So further Virginia political trivia for you: two Democratic senators. There's only one state in the entire South that has one Democratic senator. That's Florida. Bill Nelson. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the Democratic governor. I think it's gone Democrat now for the last five times in gubernatorial elections. And it's the only southern state that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And she carried it by 5.4% votes, Doug. That wasn't even one of the 10 most competitive states in America. Mm -hmm. So on paper, it's light blue to blue. But here we have an election, Doug, in which Ralph Northam beat up Gillespie by eight points. So he bested Hillary. So how did he do it? Yeah. Um, so the, the pre-election uh, prognosis was that Northam was a weak candidate and that uh, Gillespie had made, uh, closed the gap and right, that was going right. to be a competitive election. Um, I guess my read is that uh, Northam is actually, a, uh, in some ways, a pretty good candidate for the Democrats. He's, uh, um, we were talking about it earlier, and you said he's not Bernie Sanders. Uh, right. He's a moderate Democrat of the type that can win over uh, suburban Republicans, uh, of which there are a lot in Virginia. Uh, v. O. Key, in his uh, great book, Southern Politics, uh, published in the 1940s, a real classic, of, uh, called Virginia a Political Museum Piece. Uh, and, you know, the era of... of uh, uh, Harry Bird and uh, Virginia as being you know, one of the uh, last holdouts um, on segregation. It certainly has changed. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Northam, you're right, was on paper a very attractive candidate. He has Virginia roots. Uh, he has military credentials. He was a, a pediatrician who served in the Army. And he also is, shall we say, flexible in his ideology. He decided during the course of the campaign that he was not a fan of sanctuary cities, which doesn't sit well with the National Party. And he put out an ad down the stretch, Doug, in which he said these words, quote, if Donald Trump is helping Virginia, I'll work with him which is kind of an 180-degree term because early in the campaign he'd called Trump a narcissistic maniac. <laughs> I don't think you've even gone there with Trump, or maybe you have. But, but anyway. I've thought of Bill. but <laughs> He showed a certain, shall we say, moderate flexibility, which is kind of reminiscent of Bill Clinton, not Hillary Clinton. Anyway, the point, Doug, is that he did not go in there and run as Bernie Sanders. He did not pound the gavel and call for single-payer health care. He didn't talk about a higher minimum wage. He didn't talk impeaching Donald Trump. He stuck to kind of a centrist agenda, and he's rewarded for it. Yeah, so there are a bunch of places around the country uh, where uh, that are neither red nor blue. Um, I think Virginia is light blue these days. Mm -hmm. um, but there are uh, uh, you know, places that Trump won in 2016. Right. Uh, 
there are dots of uh, Republican congressional seats around the country, and they tend to be um, suburban, you know, dominated by s suburban areas, not the core Democratic constituency. Uh, and there aren't a ton of Democratic moderates appealing to them. Um, and I think, you know, that's a problem for the Democrats because th their base, which is very pumped up about opposing Trump. You can definitely see that in the Virginia data that, you know, there was a fraction of the Democrats that um, I, I think half the uh, uh, the uh, voters said that they were voting on Donald Trump and right. they were about two to one, meaning they were voting against Donald Trump. That's the Democratic base. That's the natural supporters of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I think Hillary Clinton lost because she was too moderate. Right. Um, that uh, that does not sell well in a lot of the places the Democrats need to win to um, gain a majority in Congress. Right. Uh, and a candidate more out of the Bill Clinton mode, even if somewhat dull, like uh, Ralph Northam, um, you know, can carry those places. Right. I think what you saw in Virginia, Doug, is that Trump is kind of an adrenaline shot. Um, in terms of, at least in terms of turnout, that turnout was about 10 percent higher than in 2013 when Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, won. Northam got about 400,000 more votes than, than McAuliffe did. But Gillespie kind of moved along about the same pace as uh, Cuccinelli, the Republican, in 2013, if you add in the Republican votes and the Libertarian votes in that election. So here we seem to have a problem, Doug. Donald Trump is involved in the race. The Republican candidate decides not to physically ask the president to come across the Potomac and campaign for him. Trump does do a robocall on Gillespie's behalf on the day of the election. But while Donald Trump is certainly part of the conversation, Donald Trump is physically not on the ground in Virginia. Meanwhile, Ed Gillespie is trying to campaign like Donald Trump. He's talking about illegal immigration. He's talking about lost culture. He's talking about societal drift. But guess what? It doesn't work. He actually loses by three points more than Trump did in 2016. Yeah, though the question for me is, would Trump lose by three points <laughs> right. more than he did in uh, 2016? Um, Trump was tweeting for Gillespie. Gillespie ran a anti-immigration campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, he tried to take up the Trump issues. Uh, he had some baggage that made him uh, not a great vessel for that message. Um, but it's not clear to me uh, that the full-throated uh, uh, backing of Trump uh, would actually have uh, helped uh, here. The Trump voters ended up voting for him. All the people that approve of Trump, almost all of them voted for Gillespie. Right. Uh, the problem was there weren't enough of them. Um, the, you know, I mean, we have another election coming up in Alabama in the, uh, another month in a state that is deep red. Um, and, you know, there's some evidence, I mean, it's, it would be completely shocking if a Democrat were able to win that seat. But that seat is more competitive uh, than it should be. Um, and that has to be due to uh, Trump's unpopularity. Right. Okay, so Doug, you've, you've watched last night's results in Jersey and Virginia. What do you think it speaks about the 28 midterm election? Well, so... Uh, the uh, map in 2018 in the Senate is extremely difficult for right. um, the Democrats, but not impossible. Uh, mm -hmm. They need to hold all of their seats um, and uh, pick up uh, at least uh, 
actually uh, to get a majority they're going to need three Republican seats. Right. Uh, uh, most people have assumed that's uh, out of reach, um, and it still seems unlikely. But I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't dismiss it as being impossible. Uh, on the House side, uh, you know, I mean, I think most people thought that there was a reasonable chance of the Democrats, maybe you know, thirty percent, but not fifty percent, of winning back the House. Mm -hmm. I think after last night, uh, this looks like. Uh, you know, if I were betting, I would bet a little bit on the side of the Democrats winning the House, even though um, it requires them winning most of the competitive seats. What is the congressional, uh, what is the generic congressional ballot right now? Do you know offhand? Uh, it's running 10, typically 10 to 12 points on the Democratic uh, direction, which is a big gap. Uh, there have been some as high as 15, uh, which is wave territory. Mm -hmm. I did I notice mean, yesterday, by the way, Doug, a Republican in New Jersey and a Republican in Texas announced their retirement. Yeah. I don't know about the Texas one so much, but the one in New Jersey, looks like he's getting out a step ahead. I think we're seeing a <laughs> bunch of retirements. Uh, some people worried about the primaries, like right. uh, Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, mm -hmm. um, and others uh, about the general election. Yeah, as you, as you look toward 2018, Doug, what... What information are you looking at? What tells you that there's a wave coming along or a wave is not coming along? Is it, is it just retirement? So are you looking at that generic ballot or are there some other trends you're looking at deep in polls? Yeah, so the first thing we track you know, every week is the generic congressional ballot of mm -hmm. are you going to vote Democratic or Republican? Right. Um, the reason for that is that uh, most of these races are not yet started. Uh, Opponents are not chosen. It's not clear who they'll be. It's got primaries to get through. Um, that, yeah. But the um, generic ballot, uh, even though people in safe Democratic and Republican districts will end up voting regardless uh, uh, of you know the national conditions, uh, however they will in those places, right. it's a very good indicator of sort of the direction it's going. Mm -hmm. and it determines kind of who decides to run. Uh, Democrats appear to be fielding a uh, full set of candidates this year, which uh, they haven't in some other years. Uh, they're raising money, um, still very early, but uh, raising any money at this point is a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're having Republican retirements and very few Democratic retirements. Um, you know, so you know, I, at this point, it's polling, uh, it's money, it's candidates announcing and retirements. Um, these guys are not retiring <laughs> to spend more time with their, their families. All right. And do you look at that phrase, enthusiasm gap? Does that matter to you? <clears throat> yeah, that, that's, that's a difficult one. Uh, I've heard pollsters and political scientists kick this around. Some people think it's an indicator. Others think it's vastly overrated. I, I think it's – I mean, you can see it in presidential elections where one side clearly has more enthusiasm than the other. Or, um, but it ends up being largely a proxy for mm -hmm. uh, the candidate that is losing has weaker support among their own partisans. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're winning, uh, your own partisans become very enthusiastic. So I don't really uh, think that one is a big deal. Um, we do watch like turnout in these elections mm -hmm. and you know the turnout in Virginia, the turnout in Georgia 6, uh, People are clearly getting mobilized, and the balance tends to be on the Democratic side compared to 2016 when Trump um, generated a very enthusiastic response and brought out people 
uh, more Republican voters, uh, which is how he swung the election. It wasn't converting people. It was right. Now, I sign up for about every political email that I can, and it took the Democratic National Committee about 30 seconds to send me an email <laughs> last night after victory was declared in Virginia. Their targeting isn't that great, Bill. No, well, they, they thank me for my help in, in getting Northam elected, so it's not the most scientific of emails they're doing, but by goodness, they're trying, to, they're trying to capitalize on it. I didn't hear a peep from the Republican National Committee by comparison, so I expect Doug they're spending today trying to figure out how to lick their wounds from this, but... If you're the Democrats, Doug, how do you build upon this? Because you have, you have something that I think is important for Democrats, and that you know you did not have a good 2016. You lost all of Congress. You lost the presidency. You had a bad 2014. You lost the Senate. You did prevail in the 2012 presidential election, but you lost the House in 2010. You've had some rough elections of late, but now you actually, even though it's a, even though it's an off year and it's not the large scale election, there's good news to report. So for the Democrats, Doug, how do you build upon that? Well, I think it uh, opens up the possibility of uh, Democratic success. Mm-hmm. Um, and Democrats were, uh, you know, shocked and depressed uh, after the 2016 election. Uh, and they have a motivation on the congressional elections in 2018. They are largely powerless to do anything against Donald Trump right. if they don't hold either House of Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, it they could win back the House. They can then uh, start hearings, which would be highly uncomfortable for Trump. I'm not mm-hmm. sure they would be popular. Right. Um, I think at some level the Democrats might uh, do better in 2020 if uh, they don't uh, win back uh, the House or the Senate in 2016. Um, but uh, in terms of how the politics plays out, uh, if I were Donald Trump, I would be very worried about getting uh, – Democratic-controlled House investigating um, me. I think both parties, Doug, have a concern at this hour. And let's start with the Democratic concern. And the concern for the Democrats, Doug, is who speaks for the Democratic Party. Uh, later this month in Iowa, Doug, there is what's called the Fall Gala Party, which you might remember in a past life was called the Jefferson-Jackson Dinner. But we can't, just like Washington Lee, we can't use Jefferson and Jackson anymore. So I, I don't think uh, Jefferson and Jackson... Uh, committed treason. So I, I think they're safe for a few more years. <laughs> they're not politically correct, so, so out they go. Most so slaveholders, it's, though. So it's the fall gala, Doug. Who do you think is speaking at the fall gala in Iowa? I don't know. <laughs> Hazard a guess. What prominent Democrat do you think is going to speak? Think it's Bernie Sanders? No. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren? No. It's not even a politician, Doug. Alec Baldwin <laughs> is the headlining act at the Iowa fall gala. He'll go there and do a Donald Trump invitation. Yeah. Uh, I'm not suggesting Alec Baldwin is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party in 2017, but clearly he's what sells tickets, bashing Donald Trump. So I think there's a problem with the Democrats right now, and that's having a messenger, somebody to offer offer that appealing message to 2020 voters. That person has not emerged necessarily. Uh, right. I mean, Nancy yeah. Pelosi is, is not, uh, or uh, even Chuck Schumer are not, like, uh, first-rate uh, messengers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's fascinating to watch the uh, debate over the um, tax reform bill. Um, this is a bill that is very easy to oppose if you're a Democrat. Uh, large corporate tax breaks uh, poll very poorly. Um, they're, you know, I mean, our Hoover colleagues would are <laughs> want to discuss the economics with, uh, of right. them with us, right. uh, regardless of the economics. The fact is that... You can punch a hole in it on corporate taxes. You can punch a hole in it on on increasing the deficit, the debt. Personally benefiting 
you name it. Right. This is an easy thing uh, to run against. Right. Uh, the Democrats do not have any sort of clear, coordinated message uh, on this. Um, and uh, that shows their problem. I mean, you're not going to beat somebody with nobody. Right. Uh, in the midterm, you get to run a lot of separate elections. So you don't need a national spokesman. If you've got reasonable people uh, in each state, you'll be okay. Um, but uh, at some point, the Democrats need to have some credible national candidates. Right. And it's, it's a pretty thin group, in my opinion. Right. Now let's flip it to the Republicans, Doug, who would have a national candidate in 2020, assuming he so chooses to run for re-election Donald Trump. You're a Republican congressman at this hour, Doug. How do you play Trump in your election next year? I mean, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to decide, am I going to run like Trump? Well, then I have to look at my district and see if Trump issues like immigration play in my district. I have to decide if I want the president to come visit me in my district. Do I offer the invitation? My opponent makes an issue of Trump not coming. How do, how, do I, how do I embrace or distance myself from the commander-in-chief? These are hard, hard decisions for Republicans. Uh, it's not a hard decision for most of them. You know, I mean, three-quarters of them are in districts where Donald Trump uh, has majority approval. Right. And uh, their choice is really simple, get in line, mm -hmm. uh, don't discuss the things that are a problem, but... Uh, be supportive of Trump. Right. Uh, the tough one is uh, you're a uh, California Republican. Uh, you have a district that, uh, uh, you know, did not vote overwhelmingly for Trump. I mean, um, some of them did vote for Trump, but right. not by huge margins. And he is uh, not popular here. And, his, and the policies, particularly the ones that came with tax reform, are very tough you know, for middle-income Californians. One of the best examples of that, Doug, is a congresswoman named Mimi Walters, who uh, formerly of the state legislature. She's new to Congress. She's from Orange County. She, unlike a Rohrbacker or a Daryl Issa, doesn't have a couple decades' worth of familiarity with voters to fall back on. And her district gets hit really hard by this tax plan when you start talking about taking away the state income deduction and also fiddling with mortgage uh, uh, deductions as well. So you're Mimi Walters, Doug, and here's your choice. Kevin McCarthy is going to come to you and say, vote for this plan if you want to have a future in this town. And you have to think, if I vote for this plan, I maybe don't have a future in my district. So it is it is a rock and a hard place. Yeah, presumably they'll give uh, some of those people a pass. Uh, but their problem politically is that distancing yourself from Trump is not going to win over Democratic votes. They will have right. a Democratic candidate in these districts that will run against Trump in a full-throated way. I would also say, Doug, they only have about 242 or so votes, I think, in the House. They actually don't have too many to give away if they want to want to get 218, so like 25 or so. So actually, right. yeah, those chits kind of go away really quick. Yeah, I mean, we've seen elections where bigger right. swings than that. Um, you know, it, it is the nature of the polarization uh, of the parties at this point that there aren't as many... Uh, house seats, you know, there aren't going to be uh, 80 or 90 uh, competitive house races. Um, but, uh, you know, there certainly will be 50 to 60. Exactly. Uh, Nate Cohn wrote a piece of the New York Times, Doug, on the eve of the Virginia New Jersey elections in which he talked about the current state of political polling <laughs> itself. Let me read a passage to it and get your reaction to this. Mr. Cohn wrote, and I quote, Few, if any, of public pollsters that conducted surveys ahead of Tuesday's elections for governor of Virginia and New Jersey appear to have adopted significant meth methodological changes intended to better represent the rural, less educated white voters who pollsters believe were underrepresented in pre-election surveys. 
The lack of change hints at a bleak possibility, a mismatch between the scale of the challenge facing the survey research industry and the capacity of many individual public pollsters to respond. Doug, is your industry that messed up? <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of polling, and there's a lot of uh, different kinds of polling. Right. Um, I, uh, the polling in Virginia was not great. A lot of it was, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of how it performed, of being far from the final outcome. Uh, but overall, the polls did show a Northam lead. They usually underestimated it. Mm -hmm. um, the most of the problems that he mentioned in there were problems uh, not for the kind of polling I see. It's certainly not a problem for the work that uh, we've done. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to, uh, I, I don't know how much in the weeds we should get here, but you know. So one of the things is, do you weight your samples for education? Right. Because uh, it turns out uh, people with college degrees, postgraduate degrees. Uh, they think talking about politics is really interesting and answering a survey is uh, is an appealing way to spend their time, whereas most normal people uh, don't go for that. Um, I, it shocked me to learn that there were uh, pollsters whose work was being taken seriously in 2016 that didn't correct their samples for uh, education imbalances. Uh, right. We've done that uh, for 20 years, and uh, that was only news to uh, to people who didn't know what they were doing. Imbalance, you mean overweighing a poll with too many college-educated respondents? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, to give you an example, about 20% of the U.S. population um, has not graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. In a typical survey uh, sample, they will be in the low single digits. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a group that's... Uh, at least the white voters in that group split overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Right. Uh, these are people who used to vote Democratic, uh, and they don't at the moment. Um, and if you didn't correct for that, then you were going to miss the vote uh, for Trump. Um, but we corrected for it. There were no surprises there. Mm -hmm. um, that was not the root of the uh, bulk of the polling problem in 2016. Right. Uh, so not to single out one poll, but Quinnebiac, for example. Quinnebiac, mm -hmm. I think, had an 18-point lead for Northam at one point. Um, mm -hmm. It nailed the race almost in its final poll. 9% was its margin. But mm -hmm. how do you go from 18 to 9 in a poll, Doug? <laughs> Waiting. Waiting. <laughs> so that's a problem. So did you? I mean, the, you know, the difference, if you're using the same methodology twice, mm -hmm. A nine-point uh, switch like that is a very big uh, move, right. uh, and it's very likely that they release their poll to universal laughter. Uh, to, you know, if a Democrat could win Virginia by 18 points, then American politics is something completely different from what we understand. Exactly. Um, and you know, so what happens is you have various choices and what to do with your sample, and I guarantee you they didn't do the same thing the second time they did the first time. Right. Some of the other polls in Virginia, Doug, the, the Christopher Newport University poll had Northam up by six. Yes. Uh, the Emerson College, New York Times, uh, Siena, uh, both had Northam by three. Hmm. Rasmussen had a tie, and the polling company had Gillespie up by three. Uh, who who used to run the polling company? I think she is now on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Kellyanne somebody. It's Kellyanne Conway's former company, the polling company. So surprised they have the Republican by three. So not all the surveys were out of the ballpark. They actually were within close, close to margin error in some of them. 
that two or three points is away from the margin of error. Right. So what what was done right in 2017 that did not work in 2016? Although we've talked about this, the 2016 polls were really not that off when you look at the final raw numbers. Yeah, we um, got the states wrong, but not the not the percentages necessarily. Well, in Virginia, our poll was uh, Clinton winning by five, so we were right on the mark, and right, we had that, that consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not uh, do uh, any polling for public release in Virginia, but right. I didn't. Um, I think I can say safely there was nothing in the final outcome that seemed inconsistent with uh, what was occurring in the pre-election uh, polling that I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, when you uh, you know, there's the intelligent reader's guide to uh, reading a poll. Um, and so uh, the first thing is if, if the poll doesn't give you uh, the sample composition uh, and doesn't give you the vote broken down by um, different groups within the sample, it's impossible to evaluate. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good a guess, uh, you know, what they did. Um, in terms of the, the ones, the outliers, the Quinnipiac, which actually does do kind of reasonable reporting, Siena, New York Times, not so great. Um, but you could tell from those that their samples were uh, significantly off. I right. mean, the New York Times-Siena poll, uh, first it was odd. It didn't have very good education waiting. Um, and second, uh, you know, the Trump uh, uh Trump uh, vote was, uh, uh, I think they had the 2016 vote recall up by two, which is, mm. uh, you know, three points off. If you added it to that, they would have been fairly close. Good. Okay, your weekly tracking poll, the YouGov Economist, where is Donald Trump these days? Uh, I think 36 was the last number I saw. 36, so that's the low Approval. end. That's about the low end. Is that the low end for Trump over the last 10 months, or has he been below 36? No, he's, uh, it's been trending down the last uh, six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, three months ago, he, he hit his, his low point. He, he recovered a bit. And, uh, but you can clearly see that it's been headed down. It bounces around on a day-to-day basis. But All right. So who is he losing then? Oh, he's losing marginal Republicans and independents. Okay. How does he get marginal Republicans back? Um... Everybody seems to say if he just signs a tax bill, he's going to get Republicans back. But is it that simple, Doug? Uh, well, I don't think this tax bill is going to be terribly popular with anybody, uh, right. uh, you know, in terms of voters. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very good if you have a pass-through business, but you're not a lawyer or an accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, good if you have an estate uh, in excess of $10 million. Uh, but the rate cuts are uh, few to none, uh, mm-hmm. so it doesn't do much for middle class, upper, upper middle class taxpayers. Right. Um, and particularly if you live in a uh, blue state. Mm-hmm. Um, but he needs to show that he's not completely ineffective and, uh, and a joke. Uh, right. And so passing something. Uh, I think they're going to be tempted to. Um, you know, if the politics of the tax bill goes the wrong direction to mm-hmm. cut a deal uh, to get something. Right. Um, the, um, but, you know, I, I'm, not <laughs> I'm not in the business of advising Trump. Uh, it, you know, 
what he has is a shtick that appeals to a third of the electorate. Right. And then he can pick up another five to ten points. Right. Um, it's very hard for him to get to 50. Um, so he needs, you know, bad things to happen. Yeah. Third-party candidates or something like that. Right. But what he needs to show, Doug, is that it is working. It. Me. Me challenging the swamp. Me taking Washington by storm. Me getting things done. Me building beautiful walls. Me getting tax reform. I think this is part of the problem that Gillespie ran into in Virginia. You, there's not much to show in the way of it right now unless you want to fall back on Neil Gorsuch. You well, don't, You don't have Obamacare repeal. You don't have taxes. So it, 10 months in, it has not worked so far. Well, the odd thing is the, the wisdom of political science, such as it is, mm-hmm. uh, is that the economy is what matters most. Right. And so a normal president at this point would be saying, look how great uh, uh, the economy is, and that's uh, due to my responsibility and my leadership. Right. Uh, and, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the fact is this yeah. is a pretty good economy, uh, and... Uh, you know, if, if Trump would let the attention get off himself and and run on that, he might have a shot of saying, "Hey, this isn't so bad for yeah. uh, for people." Uh, but you know, that's one ad he can cut running for re-election. But he still needs to cut two or three more ads. Right. There has to be a bill signing ad in there. There has to be a rose garden signing ceremony for taxes or Obamacare or something. And again, it ain't happened yet. Uh, yeah, you're probably right, Bill. Um, but Harry Truman did run an election in 1948 over the Do Nothing Congress, right. which did pass some bills over his veto. Correct. <laughs> um, I don't recall Truman actually getting anything uh, in, in the 88th Congress. Right. So it's an interesting, I mean, you put forward a very interesting uh, concept, and that could Trump go back and do what worked for him the first time around? Could the magic recreate itself in 2020 or not? I go back and forth on this all the time. I, I've seen in recent politics it's hard for politicians to create, recreate what they did the first time, recreate. Yeah. Obama won re-election, but it was more muted than it was in 2008, certainly. Mm-hmm. John McCain tried to resurrect the Maverick campaign in 2008, had to run as a very different guy in a different age. So sometimes these sort of, you know, just you know, once-in-a-lifetime acts, if you will, it's hard to do it twice in a lifetime. Yeah, though I wouldn't discount Donald Trump on this one. Well, I'm um, not, and that gets back to what we've been talking about in terms of you can't beat something with nothing right now. So, again, that question, Doug, is who is going to emerge on the Democratic side? And if you're the Democrats looking at these results last night, it's really tempting to say, boy, you know, the Democratic vision's working in America. Let's look around the country and let's show you all the great progressive things that are happening. I didn't even mention the transgender candidate who won legislative seat in Virginia. Uh, Democrats almost gaining control of the state Senate in Washington, so we'll have complete control of that state government. So you could actually do a map and show blue all over the country. Although it's interesting, Doug, if you actually look inside that map, that blue is not happening in too many red states. It's happening in a lot of blue states. So, But again, the question at this hour, if you're the Democrats, is who's going to emerge? And again, what are they going to talk about outside of things like single-payer health care and Trump impeachment? Yeah, the... Um, so health care is, is turned as an issue for the Democrats. Um, you know, it's no longer the albatross that it was uh, five years ago. Right. Um, taxes were the Republicans' best issue in the 80s, and now mm-hmm. they're, uh, you know, net probably Democrats do a little better on taxes than Republicans do, and I think this uh, tax bill is not going to help on that score. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a significant problem for Democrats that was evident in 2016 is identity politics. Right. 
the Democratic base is enthused about um, uh, you know, rights for gays, uh, protection of minorities, uh, uh, injustice uh, to, uh, to blacks, immigration, and so forth. Um, and the swing voters uh, are n don't share that. Um, so we ran a uh, survey last week where we um, asked uh, each person to say, to rank which issues were most important to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and the most important issue for Democrats was protecting uh, women and minorities against, uh, against discrimination or prohibiting. I forget exactly what the wording was. Um, and that was in like single digits for independents and Republicans. Wait, so, you, so that, for Democrats, that, that Trump, no pun intended, that trumped economy? Healthcare. That's right. Foreign policy. Yes. So that's the number one issue: that protecting the rights of minorities. That's right. Okay. Um, and then we asked people to rank what they thought were the most important issues to each of the parties, mm -hmm. and uh, everyone agreed on that one. That uh, that Democrats, uh, the most, uh, you know, that uh, you know, top three issues that people said that Democrats focus on were. Uh, uh, prohibiting discrimination, uh, the economy, right. uh, and uh, gay rights. Okay. And Republicans, what do Republicans want? Low taxes. Low taxes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, the traditional Republican base, which is not Trump's base, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is affluent, uh, wants small government, uh, less spending, uh, and especially lower taxes. Um, the question is, can you uh, peel off essentially the, uh, the swing voters, uh, you know, working class whites, uh, independents, uh, on this tax bill? And what do are, what are independents want, Doug, besides not being aligned with either party? <laughs> yeah, so independents are in the middle of these things. So it's, you right. know, independents are one of these categories that a third of them are really sort of... Uh, uh, nearly closet Democrats and a third are closet Republicans. They say they're independent, but it, then in fact, it's fairly predictable. You know, they're 80% probability of going um, to one party or the other. Um, and uh, some of them are even, they're independents because they think the Democrats are too conservative uh, or uh, libertarians that think the Republican Party is uh, corrupt, is not conservative enough. So this creates a challenge for Democrats then in terms of what the message will be in the midterm election. Do they go with what the base wants? Do they talk about just protecting minority rights, Doug? Do they attack Donald Trump? Do They're they going to attack Donald Trump. Attack Don they, so that's they a majority issue. So that's, that's the ref it's a referendum on Trump. Right. It's a referendum on Trump issues, Doug, or is it just a referendum on Trump's style? I think it's more a referendum on Trump's style than yeah, uh, the kinda, issues. It kind of gets back to the Alec Baldwin <laughs> issue because right. Alec Baldwin is not going on Saturday Night Live to make fun of Trump's support for you know repealing Obamacare. He's mocking the man physically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in most Democratic districts, you know, Obamacare is popular, right. uh, and they aren't an anti-immigrant, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, many of these districts are minor majority minority or substantial minority groups that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, do identify with the Democratic agenda on right. uh, anti-discrimination. But 
you're not going to win over swing voters with those issues. Uh, the, you know, Democrats have a situation where 50 to 55 percent of the public disapproves of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So go after something that has majority support. Don't go after something that's uh, controversial. Okay. Uh, somebody who does not seem to understand this is one Tom Steyer, <laughs> fellow Californian. I don't know if he's a friend of yours or not, Doug. But Mr. Steyer is spending 10 to $11 million of his considerable fortune running ads nationwide on impeaching Donald Trump, asking people to sign up to a website calling for Trump's impeachment. It was on the World Series. It crashed my baseball game. I was very unhappy that it showed up on baseball. I wish baseball were just a break from politics. But there is Tom Steyer running nationwide ads on impeachment. He's managed to do something pretty rare. He's managed to upset both Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi at the same time, both of whom do not care for this concept. But I don't know, if, have you seen any polling on impeachment, Doug? Is there any, is there any kind of tracking for this right now? Yes. Uh, we've polled on it frequently. And, okay. Uh, it polls typically in the high 40s. Um, so it's to, to impeach him. Right. Do you? The, but are the problem you asking, is you don't win any votes by it. You don't. But are you asking? Are you saying would you impeach him for X, Y, and Z? Are you putting specifics on the impeachment? Just in general, just should say, Trump be impeached? So just. I mean, the Democratic base and uh -huh. most Democrats thinks Trump is outrageous and should be impeached. Mm -hmm. um, but that's playing to the base, right. and uh, you know the. The risk for the Democrats, particularly if they win Congress in uh, 2018, mm -hmm. is they spend the whole time running hearings that make them look extreme and out of touch. Right. Um, we remember what happened to the Republicans uh, after 1994, and um, particular after the 96 election. That was not, <laughs> a, it, it's a move that played well to the Republican base. That was impeaching Clinton. Right. Um, they, in the end, uh, Clinton left office at very high popularity ratings. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're going to impeach uh, Trump, you want to do it with widespread public support. Um, and that doesn't exist at the moment. It's so a partisan then, issue. Then why does Nancy Pelosi not like what Tom Starr is doing? Because it would seem to me, Doug, she'd love to get the public riled about impeachment. She'd love to keep Democrats fired up about this. She'd like to keep her base motivated. So what's her problem? That will keep her at under 200 seats in the House of Representatives. Ah. They will win very, by large margins in those seats, but uh, it's not going to help. I don't think it's going to help them uh, pick up the, uh, the House. I mean, first, just as a matter of, you know, the way the American system is supposed to work is right. impeachment is something that, or removing a president requires a supermajority. Right. It requires bipartisan consensus. Donald Trump has done his best to build that bipartisan consensus. There mm -hmm. are, um, you know, a certain number of Republicans that are embarrassed by him, but they are not ready to impeach him at the moment. And until that happens, yeah. impeachment will be a partisan issue which will not help Democrats yeah. win marginal voters. At present, it's an exercise in futility. Let's say the House flipped Democratic in 2018. A 2019 Democratic House could impeach Donald Trump, but a United States Senate with more than 35 to 40 Republican senators sitting in it, for what you mentioned a few minutes ago, these are all red state senators, they're not going to kick Donald Trump out of office. So right. you're back to what happened with the uh, Lewinsky scandal. You'll just, you may impeach him in the House, you will not convict him in the Senate. Absent bipartisan support, it's not going to happen. And for Republicans to be willing to remove Trump from office would require clear and convincing evidence, very clear and convincing right. evidence 
Because um, otherwise, Trump's base, which is the majority of the Republican Party at the moment, would feel like it was a coup. Mm -hmm. uh, but Works what, in Saudi Arabia, apparently. But what about Tom Steyer, Doug? And let me throw kind of three Democratic models at you. A sitting Democratic senator, let's call her, say, Kamala Harris. New to Washington, but she generates a lot of buzz. She is Washingtonian, but not of Washington necessarily, like Barack Obama by 2020. She will have been there for four years. So she's not really an established Washington figure. Figure number two to look at, a former governor. Let's call him Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, which is now a fairly reliable Democratic state. And then category three, an activist, a very well-funded activist. Let's call him, oh, say, Tom Steyer, yeah. <laughs> who has a history at the Democratic Party of giving a lot of money into causes, most notably climate change. Right. Does have the ability, Doug, to spend 10 to $15 million at a drop running single-issue campaigns around the country that do one thing. He's the focus of the ad. He's the star of the ad. And by goodness, he gets a lot of attention. So which of those three models would you take seriously presidentially? Yeah, so um, Steyer's rumored for years that he was thinking about a run for governor of California or right. Senate uh, from California. Mm -hmm. um, he's always pulled back. Um, he, he's a multi-billionaire, uh, and uh, I think in the last cycle was the single largest... Uh, um, Over $40 million uh, of his own money going into going to campaign races. spending mm -hmm. through um, NextGen, which is right. his... Uh, um, um, his vehicle for this. Um, they haven't been notoriously successful. Right. Um, so, uh, nor has he won any of the, he clearly is interested in, uh, uh, in holding office. Yeah, why, why aren't you polling for this guy, Doug? You could have a second or a third home by now. <laughs> <laughs> That's my standard joke when people ask me about Tom Starr. It's just the beaches of California are littered with beach houses that consultants have bought thanks to his, his generosity. But, yeah, he has shown an appetite. I Actually, I wrote a piece for Forbes uh, this past week, Doug, in which I suggested that, you know, he's rumored to be interested in running for the Senate in California, but why would he want to win and go to the Senate? Uh, why not just run for president? And he's already he's he got a million point four people signing that petition, so he's already started something of a national network. And he's probably richer than Trump, too. He's richer than Trump. He could spend money. And if he can run those independent ads, Doug, you can kind of drive the conversation in 2019. So just a thought. He might want to think about doing a reality show first to see if he's got uh, the touch. Uh, right. Uh, I don't know if I've ever, uh, I mean, I've seen him in ads, but I. Uh, yeah. my impression is that he's not all that wonderful a candidate. Yeah, but I think for the Democrats, it raises this question, Doug, are they going to go with someone who's kind of quasi-inside the system, yeah. somebody of the system but kind of outside the system, or somebody really outside the system? Yeah, so there are people outside the system that at some level would make uh, good candidates, yeah. uh, you know, at least in terms of uh, being good on uh, TV and, and debates and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there were some rumors about Oprah Winfrey and Mark Cuban. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, it's going to be tough, though, for the Democrats to simultaneously run the Trump as a disaster because he's incompetent and inexperienced and not serious. And incidentally, we have somebody who is inexperienced. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, 
you know, the, the thing you can guarantee is a bunch of people are going to want to run for the Democratic nomination in 2020, so there'll be no shortage of candidates. The question is, will someone get through whatever mess the Democratic primaries are uh, with their uh, reputation intact and be a uh, reasonable candidate? Yeah. Uh, let, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, so one thing about Virginia that caught my interest last night, Doug, was um, a possible trap for Republicans in this regard. In an alternate universe where Donald Trump is not the nominee, but, say, Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio would have had a hard time running in the upper Midwest, as did Donald Trump. And I think Marco Rubio, Doug, would have had a different strategy. And that strategy would have been, assuming that, like Trump, he could have won Florida and he could have picked up Ohio and picked up Iowa, and in the process getting in the upper 250s in electoral votes and thus needing two more states to get over the top. Doug, I think Marco would have singled out Nevada and Virginia. Virginia was actually yeah. a pretty good primary state for him. Right. But I think what we saw on Tuesday night is Virginia is a very hard state for a Republican to pick up, period. And so maybe yeah. maybe Rubio would have futile as well. But here's, but here's the exit I question. Mean, there, it's yeah. hard to imagine a Republican that could repeat uh, Trump's wins in Michigan, right. uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Right. So now, so now you're looking kind of the pinpoint accuracy of having to pick up a state like Virginia, which just looks more Democratic after last night. But here's the question, Doug. If you are, let's say, John Kasich, and maybe you're not running for president in 2020, <laughs> but boy, you don't seem to mind having the conversation about it. So, yeah, you're thinking about it. Some other Republican, maybe Ben Stass, someone like that, who wants to stand up to Trump and run a challenge against him, either in the Republican mm-hmm. primaries or as an independent candidate, do you feel like there's a little more? Is there a little more wind in your sail after what happened last night? Well, I'm sure the Democrats are obviously enthused about what happened. Um, they I, are. They are. But if you're a Republican, should you really be concerned about this, or should you be just more focused on business at hand in Congress and what's going to happen next? Yeah. So, are there Republicans that really want Trump to fail so badly? Uh, that he's beatable in the Republican primaries. Right. Um, that, you know, I don't, I don't think Trump's worst enemies uh, in Congress at this point, you know, appear to be uh, John McCain and Bob Corker, mm-hmm. uh, really want uh, the Republican Party to go down in flames with uh, Donald Trump. They certainly wouldn't shed any tears if th- for some reason Trump was to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but for it to happen by the Republicans not being able to pass anything and the party becoming costly unpopular, which is what that would involve, uh, it would be defections of a bunch of people that are necessary for Republicans to win the election. Uh, I, I don't see that path working. Okay. So, Doug, final question. Uh, what is the next benchmark for you in terms of polling, in terms of looking where Trump is going? Are you... Are you waiting to see if uh, Speaker Ryan is right? We have a tax plan by Thanksgiving, and he signs it. There's a bump, or are you going to wait until early next year? What's 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 your timeline? Well, I poll every day, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have any choices about that. The, right. Um, but he's going so he's going up and down <laughs> kind of day by day. But you know, at some point, you're going to say, okay, where is he in a month from now? Where is he beginning of the year? What's what for you is kind of the target to look at? Well. The question is when he consistently goes under 35% in popularity. Okay. Um, what that means is if you're at about, say, 33, mm-hmm. some days you're going to poll at 36, right. some days at 30, 29. That's going to be around that area. So mm-hmm. what we're seeing at the moment is um, the national average is 39 or 40. Um, we run typically a point or two under that. So we're at, you know, uh, 
high 30s, I would say. High 30s. So, so it, you know, it's, what, it's like watching paint dry. Uh, you know, we average the last three days, and it's just a straight line, and it's been trended down like two or three points over the last six weeks. Right. So what you're looking for is to see if there's a trough below that, a trough of maybe, what, about four, point, four or five points below that. Right. So the press reports, you know, these random surveys that have Trump at 34 or 33 or something, and, you know, that'll happen. They're outliers. It's, not sure, it's, yeah. it, it's the average that matters, and it's not very exciting to watch that. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the next interesting one, because... You know, the polling outside of an election is an artificial thing. I mean, it, right. you have to be careful in how you read it. Uh, so I think this Alabama election is interesting. Uh, if you know, Democrats have consistently run ahead uh, of where they were in 2016, right. even though they've lost most of the races uh, before Virginia, uh, it was clear they were running ahead. Um, and uh, Alabama, which is a place Republicans should win by 20 points, um, if this is a six, eight point race, mm -hmm. uh, that's a sign that uh, when you actually get candidates running against each other, uh, the, the uh, candidate running on the Trump platform is, is not doing uh, what they need to win a majority nationally. Right. Yeah, good stuff. Doug Rivers, thanks for coming in today. Mm -hmm. You'll Thanks, be listening Bill. to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And yes, please subscribe to us and tell your friends to subscribe to us as well. We want to keep building this. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, most certainly including Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox every workday. You can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Doug Rivers is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. His company, YouGov, is also on Twitter. Its Twitter handle is at YouGov. That's at Y-O-U-G-O-V. Anything else I want to plug here for you, Doug? Or? We're at YouGov US because we also have a bunch of European yeah, I should note, by the way, we were not joined today by our esteemed colleague, David Brady. He must be one of those $10 million-plus people back in Washington lobbying for tax reform right now. <laughs> Dave, if you're listening, I hope you're doing well. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.